But I'd like to start with a passage, Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Paul in Colossians 2, verse 8 says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. And some have read this verse to say, Beware of philosophy. Try to stay away from going to the university at all. And if you have to go to the university, by all means, don't take any philosophy courses. They'll just mess you up. That is not what Paul is actually saying here. Yes, a lot of philosophy courses can mess you up if you aren't grounded in the Word. But if you are grounded in the Word, and if you think carefully, you will find that you can handle these, that you can flourish in these, and that you can take the presuppositions of basic philosophies and demonstrate the truth of Christianity through them. In fact, what Paul actually says, if you look at this literally, he says, not just beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy, but beware lest any man spoil you through the philosophy. He is talking specifically about a ungodly philosophy, not about philosophy in general. Philosophy simply means love of wisdom. Phileo, love, Sophia, wisdom. That then we love wisdom. Christianity really is a philosophy. But he is warning about specific philosophies to be careful of, perhaps specifically that of Gnosticism, which I'm not going to deal with here right now, but he's not saying that we shouldn't be interested in philosophy or that we shouldn't use philosophy. Now, as we move through church history, we find that as far as Greek philosophy is concerned, there were mixed feelings about it. Augustine, for example, and Luther, of course, relied greatly on the thought of Augustine, but Augustine, living in the 4th and 5th centuries, tried to reconcile Christianity and Christian theology with Platonic Greek philosophy and stressed that there are basic truths and to find those truths, we go within. Now, he isn't going all the way with Plato to say that everybody has all truth within him or that we have this inner power that communes with forms or anything like that. Rather, what he is saying is that everybody has a certain basic ability to understand truth. As Augustine has often stated, that, well, I'm kind of putting this in modern terms, when you were issued that computer that you call your brain, there were several programs that were pre-installed on it. The good, the true, and the beautiful, as many say of Augustine's philosophy, the good. Most of us have the law of God written on our hearts, as Paul speaks about it in Romans chapter 2, and a basic knowledge of right and wrong. And that's why we find in societies all over the world some degree of basic agreement as to basic principles such as that murder is wrong, that adultery is wrong, that theft is wrong, and the like. Because just about everybody has some basic innate knowledge of right and wrong that 
corresponds roughly with natural law, which in turn corresponds with the scriptures. The good, the true, and most of us inherently know that two contradictory propositions cannot both be true. Either A is true and B is false, or both A and or A, B is true and A is false, or both A and B are false. But A and B can't both be true. It takes a few years in a philosophy course to become convinced that two contradictory propositions can be true. But that's the kind of philosophy that Paul would be warning against. And the beautiful. That there is some basic sense of beauty within all of us. Some sense, now granted, that's going to differ a little bit with people. And... If I were to tell you that my wife is the most beautiful woman in North America, you might say to me, well, I'm sure she's beautiful, but I really believe my wife is the most beautiful, and you should believe that. But there are some basic concepts of beauty, like harmony is better than disharmony, and a few concepts like that. But what Tertullian is saying I'm sorry, what Paul, or what Augustine is saying, is that we do have some basic knowledge within us of the truth. That's how he's trying to reconcile Christian theology with Greek philosophy. Now, on the other hand, we have another thinker from a little bit earlier, Tertullian. Tertullian was a lawyer living around 200 A.D. Tertullian insisted that Greek philosophy is all pagan, Christians can have nothing to do with it, as he would ask, what concord hath Athens with Jerusalem? They are entirely antithetical systems, he is saying. I would say that John Locke, who many of our founding fathers in this country regarded very highly, and who some will say was not a Christian, but if you read his work, The Reasonableness of Christianity, I don't see how anyone can read that and not conclude that John Locke believed in the basics of Christianity. But he said that most of Scripture is in accordance with human reason. Some of Scripture is above reason. But none of Scripture is contrary to reason. Some of it he'd acknowledge we can't fully understand. But he would reconcile Christianity with reason in this sense, simply saying that some is above reason. Well, let's look for a moment at some of the ways that we see reason being used in the Scriptures and some of the ways that our Lord Jesus Christ uses reason. Take a look, for example, at Matthew. Matthew chapter 22 and verses 41 to 46. Here, Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the lawyers of the day, and the law that they studied was the law of Scripture. The Old Testament Torah was their basic law textbook. But we read, starting with verse 41 of Matthew chapter 22, Well, the Pharisees were together. Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. Now there they're in complete agreement. The Pharisees agree that the Christ, that's the Greek term Christos, same as the Hebrew 
Messiah, the Messiah, they believe a Messiah is coming, and they believe, in accordance with scriptural prophecy, that he will be the son of David. And now Jesus confounds them with a logical question. There's a basic premise here that we need to understand, and that is that in the Jewish view, a son is not greater than his father, and a son will show respect to his father. And so Jesus asks, how then doth David in spirit call him, that is Messiah, Lord, saying, the Lord, this is from the Psalm, Psalm 110, the Lord, referring to the Father, said unto my Lord, referring to the Son, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. What is he saying? Consider this logically for a minute. A son is not greater than a father. And yet, David calls his son my Lord. A father is not going to call his son Lord, unless that son is something more than merely a human son. In other words, if you believe, Pharisees, that Jesus is, that the Messiah is the son of David, and if you believe when the scriptures say that David called him Lord, you must believe that he is something more than simply a physical son. And we read, no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. And now we go on to see where Jesus confronts the Sadducees. Now, one thing that distinguished the Sadducees from the Pharisees was that the Sadducees would accept as authoritative only the first five books of the Old Testament. The rest of it, the wisdom, literature, the prophets, might be okay, but they wouldn't accept those as the authoritative word of God. Only Genesis through Deuteronomy was the authoritative word of God for them. Also, they did not believe that there would be any resurrection. Once you die, according to the Sadducees, you cease to live, you cease to exist. A way to remember that is that that is why they were so sad, you see. They didn't believe in any life after death or any resurrection. And we see that in verse 18, the Sadducees have come to Jesus, and they, and as they say, they say there is no resurrection. And they ask Jesus, saying, and then their question is that Moses wrote to us about how if a man's brother dies, then if there are no children, the brother needs to take the widow as his wife so that they can raise up seed or so that they can give children to his brother's wife. And then they go on to ask, what about a man here who married a woman and he died, and then his brothers each marry her in turn after that in accordance with Jewish law, and they all die. Now whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection? Now, they're asking this to try to trip Jesus up because, in their view, there isn't going to be any resurrection, and this question is designed to show how silly belief in a resurrection really is. And notice how Jesus answers, You do not err, or you do ye not therefore err, because you know not the Scripture, neither the power of God. He goes on to say that in heaven there will not be marriage and giving in marriage. I don't believe that means that you will not recognize your spouse in heaven or that you will not have a special relationship with him or her, but marriages in heaven do not take place according to this. 
But then he goes on, verse 26, And as touching the dead, that they rise, have ye not read in the book of Moses? Now, remember, the book of Moses. Now, you Sadducees accept the book of Moses, don't you? That's one of your five books that you accept. How in the bush... God spake unto him, saying, remember this is God speaking through the burning bush to Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Ye therefore do greatly err. Now, what is he actually saying here? He's saying, think about this a moment. You believe that God is the God only of the living, not of the dead, because the dead no longer exist in your view. And yet, when God spoke to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were dead, and yet he said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac of Jacob. Now just think of that simply from a standpoint of logic. Premise, major premise, God is the God only of the living. Minor premise, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Conclusion, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must be living. And therefore, your view that there is no resurrection must be wrong. Simple logic. Another example, let's go to Luke 5. In Luke 5, here we see Jesus as he performs a healing. And in verse 18, we read of this healing that, Behold, men brought in a bed with a man which was taken with a palsy. And they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him, that is, Jesus. And when they could not find by what way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went upon the housetop and led him down through the tiling with his couch into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said unto him, that is the man with policy, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Now, if you're smitten with something very severe, and you go into a doctor, and the doctor comes to you and says, Thy sins be forgiven thee, you're probably going to respond with something like, well, that's nice to know, but meanwhile, can you do something about this policy? But notice what happens then. The scribes and the Pharisees begin to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who is this man, and what is he claiming? If he's claiming that he forgives sins, then either he's claiming to be God... Or else, he is driving that power from some other source. And Jesus perceived their thoughts. He didn't hear them, but he perceived what they were saying. So he says, verse 22, What reason ye in your hearts, whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise up and walk. Notice he doesn't ask, Which is easier to do, forgive sins, or heal? Which is easier to do of those? Obviously, healing is going to be easier than forgiving sins, because in order to forgive sins, you have to pay for those sins by dying on a cross. But it's easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, 
because nobody can check that out and prove you wrong. If I say, rise up and walk, and you can't do it, then you know I'm a fake. Anyway, so his point is, I am using this lesser thing of physical healing to demonstrate something greater, the power that forgives sins. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has power to forgive sins, and then he speaks to the man who has palsy. He says, I say to thee, Arise and take up thy couch and go into thine house. And immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. Let's go on to Luke 18. Luke 18, we see the encounter of Jesus with the rich young ruler, and I wish I had time to preach a whole message on the rich young ruler alone, but I'm going to just talk about one portion of this, where we read in Luke 18, starting in verse 18, that this ruler, this young man, asks Jesus, saying, Good Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus stops him immediately. Why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. What Jesus is saying here is that you cannot come to me halfway. Either I am something more than a man, something more than a mere teacher, or else I'm a sinner like everybody else. You address me as master, or literally that means teacher. Well, C.S. Lewis talked about this as the trilemma of liar, lunatic, or Lord. When Pastor Franz gave you my credentials, I might just say jokingly right now that he forgot to mention that I also am God. Now, if I were to make that claim, and I'm not, but if I were to make that claim, you could come to one of three conclusions, one of which I know you wouldn't even consider. The first conclusion would be, well, this guy is faking. This guy is a scam artist. He's trying to get us to support his ministry. He's trying to get money from us, whatever he's trying to do. This man is a fake. He, therefore, can't be good. He's a fraud. He's a liar. Or we know what people are from Alabama are like sometimes. Maybe he is crazy enough to really think he is God. In which case, he's a lunatic. And so we can't consider him our great teacher, a great example. He's crazy. Or, and there is only one other possibility. He really is who he claimed to be, the Son of God. And again, Jesus is using reason to address this rich young ruler. And he is saying to him, you can't come to me halfway as a great teacher or a great example. Either I am the Son of God, or I am a sinner just like everybody else. As C.S. Lewis said, he didn't give us that middle ground option. He did not intend to. One more example I'm going to use here, and this is out of Acts chapter 17. And here we are dealing with the Apostle Paul. And Paul 
is there at Mars Hill, place where we find people of various Greek philosophies debating and disagreeing with one another. And that is one thing to remember. When you hear somebody say, Greek philosophy teaches, no, there are many, many different Greek philosophies. Plato and Aristotle agreed on some things, but disagreed on many things. And so did many of the others, the Epicureans, the Stoics, many others. But Paul is allowed to speak here because anybody at this Mars Hill could get up and express ideas, however crazy they might be. And as he starts to say in verse 22, notice he is trying to make common ground. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things ye are too superstitious. Some translations will say very religious. Either of those would be correct from the Greek personally. I think he is trying to build common ground here, and I think very religious is probably reflects the intent of what he is saying. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now there was a Greek account a couple centuries after Christ as to where that altar came from. Several centuries before Christ, there had been a great plague in Athens, and they had tried all sorts of things to end this plague, their forms of medicine and the like, and also trying to appease their gods by sacrificing to it. Nothing worked. And so they sent to a man down on Crete and asked this wise man, can you help us? He came, he looked and saw all their altars and so on. I think you've offended a god. But how could that be? We have all these altars to every god we can think of. There must be another god that you haven't thought of who is angry with you. And so he suggested they erect this altar to the unknown god. And when they did so, then the plague ceased. Not 100% sure that that is correct, but it does come in an ancient account in around 2nd century after Christ. Paul says, Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And then he goes on to use that as his starting point. The idea that within man there is a desire for God, and with that starting point, he starts to explain to them who the unknown God really is, and shares how that God is the God who is eternal, who is in heaven, but who has sent his son, Jesus Christ, here on earth. And then I find it interesting that he goes on even here to talk about, as verse 28, so of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Here he's quoting from a Greek philosopher, Eratus, from the 3rd and 4th centuries B.C. Same phrase is found in a Greek poem, Phenomena, around the same time, 3rd and 4th centuries B.C., now, how does Paul know this? He was not taught that in the school of Gamaliel. The Jewish law schools are not going to be teaching pagan philosophy. But Paul has taken the time here to read their philosophers, to understand their ideas, so he can deal with them. I recall one AFLC conference where we had a very fine young pastor who's not from the AFLC, but who made the statement that, you know, it was not logical that I would become a pastor, but when the Holy Spirit speaks, you set 
logic aside. No, not necessarily. In fact, there is a common thing that is said among Christians. There is no place for reason in matters of faith. There is no place for reason in matters of faith. But when you hear somebody say that, you almost hear a semicolon afterward. Now, can you refute that? In other words, that very statement, there is no place for reason in matters of faith, is presented as a logical, reasonable statement. The Spirit works through evangelism, works through Sunday school teachers. He also works through Christian apologists, those who defend the faith. Now, how does that fit into our Lutheran view here, the two kingdoms? The two kingdoms, the kingdom of the right, the church, the kingdom of the left, the state, the former of which relies primarily on revelation. Luther once said, beware the weather witch reason, or some translations say, beware the whore reason. Luther was not saying that reason itself is inherently wrong. Luther was rather saying that our intellects are limited, and therefore our use of reason is therefore many times going to be flawed. God has given us reason. He's given us reason as a bridge of communication between believers and unbelievers. Now, Luther and Calvin were, I would say, in agreement about 98% of the time. In fact, Calvin even signed the altered Augsburg Confession. But Calvin would probably place a little greater emphasis on reason than Luther would. If you read Calvin's commentaries, if you read his institutes, he almost strains to make everything logical and to make any statement he makes today consistent with what he'd said before. Luther is less concerned about that. In fact, Luther is more concerned about being faithful to the Word of God, the text that he is preaching today, than he is about being consistent with what he said before. Luther would probably say, today the text I am preaching on teaches predestination, so today I'm preaching predestination. Next Sunday the text I'm preaching on preaches free will, and so next Sunday I will preach free will. And I'll leave it to God, the Holy Spirit, to work out any possible inconsistencies. And Luther was less likely to tie in the loose ends than Calvin was. And another thing you have to say about the difference between them is that Calvin had the benefit of 25 years of Luther's developing thought. And he kind of started where Luther left off. I was going to say, the, when I was at the Lutheran Brethren Seminary, I wanted to write my thesis there on a meeting that Calvin and Luther had that only I have discovered. And anyway, that itself should tell you be careful about this. But they did have a meeting in which Calvin said, I have been reading your 95 theses. Luther said, what did you think of them? Calvin answered, you nailed it. <laughs> but... They didn't differ all that much, but they would focus often on the things on which they would differ. So must I check my brain at the church door? No, Christianity is a true philosophy. It can hold its own in the marketplace of ideas. 
It is defensible in courtrooms, in legislatures, in college classrooms, in the media, and it needs and deserves a fair hearing. It is entirely appropriate for Christians to go to court against other organizations and unbelievers in order to gain a hearing for the gospel. You'll find no less than four times in the book of Acts, Paul stands on his rights as a Roman citizen, but not just to get a big bucks lawsuit, rather to gain a hearing for the gospel. Reason has its limits, though. Reason can demonstrate the truth of Christianity and the falsity of other beliefs. But reason cannot compel conversion. Faith involves reason, but it is more than an intellectual belief. The story is told of a man who would walk across a tightrope across Niagara Falls. And a man was watching him, and the walker said to the man, You saw me do that? you think I could do it again? Yes, I think so. You're really convinced I could do that again? Yes, I, I'm convinced you can. Well, why are you so sure I can do it again? Because I've seen you do it, and because I understand you've been doing this a couple times a day for many, many years, and you've never fallen once. I'm convinced you can do it again. Fine, then. Get on my back, and I'll carry you across. There is the difference between the intellectual belief that reason can produce and the saving faith that comes only through the power of the Holy Spirit. One can lead to the other, but we need both. I hope this message has been of value to you, and we'll continue on some of these same themes and develop them further in the hour to come. Thank you, and may God bless you.